I doubt if any of you have ever been to this place, but there is a location uh, in Turkmenistan, uh, the Karakum Desert has a location called Darwiz, and, and in this is this massive crater. You're going to see pictures uh, behind, as it's kind of like you're walking toward this crater. About 50 years ago, Soviet geologists were looking for gas and oil. They found a location where they thought there was salmon, so they put up a rig. But over time, that rig collapsed, creating this, this huge crater, 69 meters across, 30 meters deep. They decided to bypass it and go to another location, but there was a village nearby that was uh, being affected by the methane gas that was rising from that crater. So they decided they would just kind of, let's just burn it off. Let's just light a match, burn it off. It'll be gone in a few days and and it'll be over with. And so they lit this thing and it became an inferno. It not only burned a few days, it's been burning for 50 some years. It has the nickname, the gateway to hell. Gateway to hell. And the reason I, I learned about this was about a month ago, the president, current president of Turkmenistan says um, they need to shut it down. Good luck. Good luck trying to shut down the the gateway to hell. You know, people have tried to do that biblically for many, many years. One of the ways they tried to shut it down was saying, you know what, I'm very uncomfortable with this doctrine in the Bible. I just can't understand this place of eternal punishment. So we believe God's love. And God wants everyone to be saved. And so whether it be in this life or the next, God's going to turn it around for everyone. We're all going to be one happy family. It'll all work out well. It's called universalism. There's actually a denomination among churches called the Universalist Church that has one of its major tenets, this belief that everyone either in this life or the next life, we'll get a second chance then, will be reconciled with God and his love will prevail. And so when they read scriptures that talk about fire, they just see that as purifying fire, not, not a fire of punishment. Now, there's others who've tried to close the gateway to hell with this doctrine called annihilationism, which means that if there really is a place like that, those that go there would suffer for a very brief period of time, and it would be over. They would just, they would just cease to exist. Uh, people don't like this. In fact, I, I don't like this whole doctrine of hell. Joel Osteen, when he was asked, like, why don't you ever preach on this? He said, well, he said, uh, People, people get beat up every day, and when they come to church, we want them to, to leave uplifted. Now, I understand where he's coming from, but the question is, is, is the doctrine of hell in the Scripture intended to beat people up? Or could it be, like when there's a tornado or a hurricane, that there's a, there's a disaster coming, and because we care for you and love you, we are alerting you to the disaster, that's what Jesus is doing. Do you know that, that in all scripture, if you look up anything that has to do with this place of, of everlasting punishment, the one who speaks of it the most is the very same one who loves you the most and gave his life on a cross for you. Nobody spoke about it more than Jesus. Uh, about half of his parables include judgment and, and eternal locations. And, and oftentimes Jesus is speaking to religious audiences as he talks about this. It's a very real subject, something that the Lord wants us to know about. In fact, Jesus once said, flee from the coming wrath. Flee. Danger's coming. The storm is coming. I'm trying to give you the way out. I provided you a way of escape. Take it. Take it. Charles Spurgeon, who's a great Baptist preacher, well over 100 years ago over in Europe, said, Beloved, these are such weighty things that while I dwell upon them, I feel far more inclined to sit down and weep than stand and speak to you. That's true. 
What we're going to talk about today is, is nothing to really laugh about. In fact, it's very sobering. You know what's the most sobering as I studied this this past week? Looking at all these different scriptures, many of them are given to church people. Because Jesus said, you've you got to be real serious about the Lord. Don't be, you know, lukewarm about your faith. Don't think just because you made a decision years ago that that's like a ticket. It says, be about living for me. And so as we approach this, we're going to look at Luke chapter 16. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus is telling us a story. Now, some people would say, like, well, this sounds like a parable. But I want you to note that whenever Jesus gave parables, he never used personal names. He doesn't introduce this as a parable. He doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is like. He just talks about two men and the contrast of their lives. So I'm going to say a brief prayer before we look at the scripture. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Father, open our eyes to see like never before what you want us to know about this doctrine and how we should be living for you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. Luke 16. It says there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, and the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And then he said, Well, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, unless they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, there's three things. We're actually going to talk about heaven next week. And so we're not going to, so we'll hold a lot of that off. But the truth is, from this passage, we learn that everyone lives forever somewhere. Everyone's going to live somewhere forever. Death is not the end, as we sang in the song a little bit earlier. It's a doorway to one of two eternal places. Daniel spoke of this in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 12 says that many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Same word used for both, everlasting. God made us to be everlasting. He made us in his image with the intent that we would live forever. Now, these two men are very different. There's a rich man. He dressed very lavishly, eats well. And outside the gate is, is laid this man named Lazarus, covered with sores, hoping that he might get a doggy bag from the rich man's table. But after they die, it says, the poor man was carried by angels to Abraham's side. You know, I love that picture there that, that if you die in the Lord, angels come to escort you. I remember a movie, The City of Angels, and a little boy dies on an operating table, and he's met by an angel and walks off in, kind of into the, into the distance. You know, the angels. We don't see that with the other man, but with, with Lazarus, you do. And that's one of the places where Lazarus went. He went to Abraham's bosom. You either go there, Abraham's bosom, 
which is a symbol of heaven. Now, I can't say it's heaven. Heaven hasn't been revealed fully yet. We, look, we read in Revelation, heaven hasn't been brought down. Uh, have, the earth hasn't been renovated yet. We haven't experienced heaven. Heaven hasn't been unveiled to us in its fullness. But in a very real sense, there is a foretaste of heaven, and he's experiencing it. They call it Abraham's bosom, Abraham's side. Other places in the Bible call it paradise. Remember when Jesus was nailed to the cross next to that thief, and the thief said, man, you're a king, and I know you're going to go into your kingdom. Would you just remember me when you get there? And Jesus said, today you'll be with me where? Paradise. Paradise is where Jesus is. Jesus is in paradise. He'll be in heaven. But, but so when a person dies, a loved one, and you have loved ones that have died in the Lord, I'm confident they're with Jesus in a very beautiful place, a place that's described paradise. Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 12 about a man, most people believe he's talking about himself, that went to paradise and experienced indescribable things. In the book of Revelation chapter 2, it says, the angel spoke to the church at Ephesus and says, to the one who overcomes, he will eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. See, David saw that in the Old Testament. He looked forward to that day. He said, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. That's the place of the dead. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life in your presence. That's the key. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Abraham's bosom, heaven, both are true in that God is present there. Where God is present, it's beautiful. There's comfort. There's joy. There's security. There's plenty. Lazarus didn't get so much as a doggy bag from the rich man, but he's sitting at the king's table in, in glory. But now the other man, the rich man, he doesn't get carried by angels. We don't even know how he got to Hades. He probably took a shoot. He just ended up down there, ended up down there. We, he got there very quickly, very different place. It's called Hades. Hades is the place of the dead, but usually it's, it's seen as even more a place of, of suffering. It's the opposition to God. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church. So we have Hades, which is kind of like paradise is to heaven. Hades is to hell. It's a foretaste. It's not the fullness yet. The fullness of hell hasn't been revealed yet. But basically, it's where God is absent. God's absence is there. There's no comfort. There's no joy. There's no reunion with people. He is not present. Paul says when Jesus returns, this is from first, or 2 Thessalonians 1, that those who are opposed to Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Shut out from his presence. That's, that's what Hades or hell is. Now, there's a lot of other descriptions. And you know, they get pretty graphic. A, a place where the worm does not die, where there's darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the flame never dies, a place called the lake of fire. I mean, if it's anything like any of those, it's not a good place. It's not a place that anyone would want to spend eternity. And I know people joke about it and say like, ah, you know what? I'm going to be there with all my friends. You know, I don't mind a little heat. I lived in Arizona. You know, I lived in Arizona. I remember driving down there. I had a car with, that did not have air conditioning. And the first drive, it was in August, driving down the mountains in Arizona, I thought, I'm going to crank that window down and get some fresh air coming in here, cool me. It was like a hot blow dryer. There was was no coolness. I mean, in Wisconsin, you get moist air, it's cool. Not in Arizona. It was hot. It was really hot. And some people think, well, it, it could get really hot. I can tolerate heat. 
But there's, there's no friendship here. I mean, people think we're going to drink fireball whiskey and, and hell, you know, goes down like heaven, burns like you know what. So we're, that's what we're going to do. He says, no, no. The rich man, I'm sure, had a lot of parties in the real world. With all that wealth, he had a lot of parties. He's not partying now. There's no party. In fact, the one that's enjoying himself is Lazarus. And now the tables are turned. Lazarus used to beg for food from this man's table. This man now begs, Lazarus, would you please come? Just dip your finger into some water and touch my tongue. Give me some relief. And Abraham says, no doing. He can't do that. There's a chasm between the two of us, and he can't cross that. And the truth is, every one of us is going to live in one of those two places. Everyone will live forever somewhere. Randy Alcorn says this, which I think is a great reminder. It's in his book on heaven. Christian, for Christians, this present life is the closest they will come to hell, but for unbelievers, it's as closest they'll come to heaven. Meaning what you experience here, the ugliness of this world, that's the worst we'll ever see if you're a believer. But if you're not a believer, this is as good as it gets. It's not going to get any better. It can only get worse. So we get to live in one of two places, and your destiny, this is the second point, is determined by your decisions. I have said this. Week after week, it's, it's one thing I believe so strongly, that if you don't like living under the lordship of Christ here, you'll never have to do that in forever, because he won't be there. And if you love living under the lordship of Christ, you will get to do that forever, because he will be the king in heaven. It's your choice. It's our choice. God made us, and he didn't make hell as a place for us. In fact, Jesus says, I made this for the devil and his angels, but if you're going to align yourself with them, then go their way. Go be with them. But the people over here, they're the ones who want me to be their Lord. Now, there's an interesting thing if you go back and look at this chapter. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees about their view of money. And he challenges them that they've not been good stewards. He even tells them this. The ungodly people around you know how to use money more shrewdly than you because they're thinking ahead. They're thinking ahead that, you know, they're, they're buying off people so when they're poor, they'll have friends who will take them in. And what he's actually saying is they're thinking forward. They're looking at money. How will this benefit me in the future? Jesus says, you're not thinking that way. And what he's hinting at here is how we handle money has an impact on forever, on our future, on forever. And we live it with him as Lord. So Jesus tells them, you cannot serve both God and money. And they respond like this. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And so Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. So then he says, there's a rich man who dressed himself in fine linen and purple, two, two things that were very expensive, purple clothing because of the dye, very expensive clothing, linen, very expensive clothing. He wore his wealth on his body. Everyone knew he was rich by, by his clothing. You know, people do that. They'll wear their shoes, their, their handbags, their clothes, you know, drive the cars, you know, flashes their wealth. I'm wealthy because I've got this stuff. This is how this man lived. Yet he was oblivious that this guy named Lazarus was being laid at the gate. And while he ate lavishly, probably had steak and potatoes, no peanut butter jelly sandwiches, no mac and cheese, no Taco Bell. He ate real well. And I imagine the clattery noise in his dining room table 
drowned out the cries that he could hear outside from Lazarus saying, please, 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 just the scraps. In fact, it says that that man was covered with sores and the feral dogs would come. If you've been in foreign areas, these are not household pets. These are the dogs that roam the streets. They would come and lick his wounds. Now, what Jesus is saying is these stray dogs were kinder to Lazarus than the man had all the resources in the world to help him. The dogs. The dogs were better than the rich man toward Lazarus. Think about that. Some people would say, well, that's karma. You know, the rich man got what he deserved. He must have done some good things. And, and Lazarus must have done some really bad things. So he was suffering. But that's not the case at all. It's really how he dealt with what God had given him to be a blessing to other people. And I know that sometimes we think, wow, hell's going to have the most perverted people there, the, you know, the sexually perverse, the violent, the mass murderers, the liars and cheaters, those who scam people out of millions of dollars. They're all going to be there. But this man wasn't any of those things. You know what he was? Selfish. Self-centered. That's it. That was his crime. Selfish and self-centered, not recognizing that God had given him resources to steward for his kingdom. See, God gives us material goods, money, possessions, as a trust. Not, not simply for us, though we enjoy some of them. It's to share with others. And it, and it tests what's in the heart. Now, here's what, what poor people deal with. I can't be selfish very well with what I don't have. But the more you have, the more the challenge is to be selfish. How, how much do you accumulate for yourself? How big does your wardrobe need to be? How many pairs of shoes do you need? Uh, how, how much do you need to spend on food? How, I mean, we all have to wrestle with those questions, and it's, a, it's an issue of stewardship. When you don't have money, you don't have to wrestle with those things because you just don't have it. But a rich person does, and a rich person's held more accountable. Money can buy comfort, it can buy luxury, it can buy earthly security, it can buy material possessions, it can even attract friends, it can give you incredible experiences. You can buy tickets into events that other people can't go to. You can get a ticket to the Super Bowl if you have a lot of money, but you cannot buy a ticket into heaven, no matter how rich you are. It's not for purchase. So what do you do? Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He says, lay up treasure in heaven. And then Paul actually answers how you do that. He says, he says this, you are to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing treasure up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. See, it's easy to point fingers at the bad people but what about the selfish people and the people that I said earlier? And I'm not pointing them at you as much as even me. Like, hasn't God blessed us richly? Hasn't God given us so much? Is he going to hold me accountable for that? See, lordship is not a one and done decision. Like, I accepted Jesus, you know, back in 1978. I accepted Jesus and was baptized, you know, in 2005. Got my ticket. Jesus said, many will come on that day and say, Lord, Lord. But he says, not everyone who says that to me will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. That's the key. Not what you confess, but what you do. Your lifestyle reveals your Lord. Your conduct testifies to your king. Who is king? Who is Lord? How do we live our lives? See, I, I, I've heard of my whole life, 
invitations where come accept Jesus and you get kind of your pass to heaven. In fact, I, I got so offended once when I was a children's pastor, group of kids in a room, and basically they were told, who wants to go to heaven? All the kids raised their hand, well, come down here and, and accept Jesus. And, and they prayed over them and sent them home saying, you're going to go to heaven someday. And I thought, did you ever talk to these kids about lordship? About living for Jesus? You, we're not going to show up at the pearly gates and then pull out a baptism certificate and go, hey, hey, hey. Here it is, folded up, it's been in my wallet all these years. See, Jesus made a commitment back there. He goes, I don't care about what you did back there. Let's talk about last week. Let's talk about the last five years of your life. Let's talk about the last. See, lordship is an ongoing decision. If he's Lord, you do it every day. Do it every day. If he's king, you make that decision that I'm going to live for Jesus this day and the next day and the next. If you ask me about my wife and ask me about marriage, I wouldn't say, ha, I am married I'll show you this certificate from May 15th, 1987. Says I'm married. You know what? If you want to ask me about my marriage, I'll say, you know what? I married a wonderful gal. And our love has grown deeper all these years. I love her more now than I, than I loved her back then. And she's my best friend, and I'll do anything for her. And if someone asked me about Jesus, I would not look back. I can't even tell the day I accepted Jesus or was baptized. I don't know. I kind of know the rough period of time. I don't really know exactly. But there's no doubt he's my Lord. There's no doubt that I want to please him more every day, that I want to know him closer, that I, not that I'm perfect, but I want to know him. I want to love him. I want to serve him. I want to worship him with all my heart. I, Jesus truly is my king. My question for you is, don't look back at a decision you made, but right now, how you're living your life, is he your king? Do you take him seriously? Do you pray? Do you, are you here at worship every week? Do you give to his kingdom's cause? That's lordship issues. Is he Lord? That's what he wants to be. It's the best decision you can make to make Jesus your Lord. I love what Peter says. This is great advice. Live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Just make that decision. I'm going to live my life, the rest of my life, for the will of God. And here's what I want to say. Some of you need to stop messing with sin. You claim Jesus as Lord. You're flirting with pornography. You're flirting with the girl down the hallway. You're, you're, uh, you're not managing the resources God has given you in a godly way. You're throwing away on gambling and lottery tickets and all kinds of stuff and things that aren't, aren't pleasing to the Lord. I mean, are you living your life daily for the Lord? Don't take his grace for granted and say, well, God's forgiven me of all that stuff. Well, then good. You put it behind you. You don't keep doing it. That's why we accept him as Lord because I don't want to live like that. I want to live under his kingship. Seek first his kingdom. That means his kingship. And if you don't want to do that, you don't have to. God never twists anyone's arm to follow him. It's an invitation to his kingdom. But I'm just telling you, if you're serious about it, then be serious. Just like if you get married, you don't start flirting with other people. You don't start dating others. You don't start wandering with your attention. You, you devote to the relationship. I want to just say, if you're serious, devote your energy, devote your attention to the relationship you have with Jesus Christ. Live for his will. Your decisions, your daily decisions are paving the way to your destiny. Then thirdly, respond to God's mercy while you can. If you're not doing that, this is the opportunity to turn it around. Scripture says God does not delight in the death of the wicked. God, God doesn't rejoice that anyone would, would perish. In fact, he says he does not want anyone to perish but all to come to repentance. 
In love, he came to save us, but he's coming again, Scripture says, and this time he's coming to bring justice on the earth. This rich man took God seriously, finally. It was too late. It was too late. He said, you know, if, if someone from the dead could come back and tell my family, they would listen. Do you know what? There have been people, actually, who've come back from the dead. Now, God doesn't promise that people die and get to come back, but I have to say, there have been innumerable accounts of people who've died and either personally, like, like were transported to another dimension or maybe saw a vision of something and experienced something so vivid they thought it was heaven and then came back to life and, and wrote a book about it or tell a testimony about it. And it's amazing how similar many of those stories are. Now, I can't say they're all true, but I have to wonder if, if God is giving us a glimpse because there are other people who experience the opposite. Not as many, but there's some who experience something so horrible and they come back to life. One of those guys is a guy named Bill Weiss. And I put a link, should be in your bulletin. If you hold your uh, camera over it, I'll take you to a YouTube link. Some of you in your uh, online, you may be seeing a link to a YouTube video. His name's Bill Weiss. You can look it up. It's eight minutes long, 23 minutes in hell. He was a Christian man, went to church on Sunday night with his wife, came home. During the evening, he got up, wanted a drink of water. It was about three in the morning, took a drink of water. And he says, all of a sudden, he said, it was like I was, I was given a vision of hell. And he describes what it was like. Everything he describes in it were things that, that, that I have shared from Scripture. Nothing that experienced contradicted Scripture. And he came back, and he is so passionate for the Lord in leading people to Christ because of his experience. But you know what? People hear those and go, ah, I don't know. And even Bill Weiss says, you don't have to believe me. You don't have to believe my story. But don't ignore what God says. And that's what Abraham actually tells this man. Hey, your, your siblings and your kids have the law and the prophets. They have Moses, Moses and the prophets. The first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, the prophets, all the different prophets in scriptures, about 18 or so books. The, whole, the Old Testament basically saying they have that, but they've not been listening to God. The Old Testament tells you that, the, that God loves us, that he's willing to forgive us, that even though he punished the world for sin, he says, I will put in motion a plan of redemption. And he chose a man named Abraham to be the father of that, and that through Abraham and through his offspring, he would be the father of many nations. And out of those nations would come one holy line that would end up bringing the Savior into the world. That was the line of Judah, and that was Jesus. Jesus became the seed of Abraham that then became the blessing to the whole world. So if you read through the Bible, yes, there's judgment in there and there's sin and there's ugliness, but there's a redemption. There's a loving kindness from God saying, I don't want you to live like that. I don't want you to suffer for sin. I want to redeem you. Paul reminded Timothy of this. He says, from childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Scripture alone can convert somebody. My youth leader, the man who had a big influence on my life when I was in high school, came to Colorado to a conference, spent a night in a hotel, and in those days, they had Gideon Bibles in the hotel room. So he found a Bible there, he's bored at night, opened up the Bible, and began to read it. And before the night was over, he gave his life to Christ. And, and he's still serving the Lord passionately with youth in his 60s. Incredible guy, had a big impact on me. Scripture can lead you to the Lord if you listen to God's voice through it. But God sent, gave us something even better than the Scriptures. He sent us a Savior. He sent us a Savior. And I'll tell you this, you cannot truly appreciate what Jesus did on the cross unless you understand the doctrine of hell. 
Because when you say that he saves me, what is he saving you from? He's saving us from eternal separation from God. And if, if, if the more you grasp that, you, the more you're humbled by it. The more you worship Jesus for what he's done, the more you're repentant of sin, saying, oh, Jesus, that's where those actions were leading me? Oh, my goodness. You went to the cross for me. Because think about this. When Jesus went on the cross, how he suffered. He suffered physically. Nails were driven in his hands. He suffered by the rejection he experienced. People cursing him, spitting at him. Jesus was, was going through all kinds of things on the cross. But there was a, one moment... That afternoon, for three hours, the sky turned black. Much like hell is dark. And the sky turned black in the middle of the day. And during that period of time, Jesus yelled out a cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because for the first time in Jesus' existence, he and the Father were separated. Remember, heaven is the presence of God. Hell is the absence of God. Jesus experienced the absence of God on the cross. And it was horrifying. Let out a, probably a blood-curdling cry when he did that. Because he was experiencing God's judgment. See, God turned his back on his son because his son was, was covered, in a sense, with the sins of mankind. He took all of our sins upon himself. In a sense, Jesus suffered hell in our place so we wouldn't have to. That's why the offer of salvation is, is so beautiful. Jesus did something so generous for me so that I wouldn't have to go through that? Why would I reject that? I mean, if we really understood that, if you actually saw flames and saw the crater and, and Jesus says, I want to save you from that, you'd come running down the aisle and fall on your knees and say, Jesus, why, what have I been waiting for? I, 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 I need you. Jesus, why have, I, why have I been playing church all these years? No, I'm surrendering fully to you. Don't put off getting right with the Lord. I know from a perspective, as we look outside of us, we have family members, we have siblings that don't know the Lord. And in Jude, it says, have mercy on those who doubt, not judgment. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear. Our place is not to point a finger at other people and be their judge. I don't know who's going to heaven, who's going to hell for sure. I do know this. If you give your life to Jesus, live like he's your Lord, you'll be with him forever. I can promise you that. I don't know who's going to hell. He does. That's, that's him. He's the judge. I'm on the invitation team. You are too. Our job is to get the word out to people. Let them know. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. But there's another reason. Jesus loves me. This I know. For on the cross, he showed me so. And so we get the word out to people. We let them know. Now, I know from a human perspective, we look at it this way. And people often argue, I can't believe in a God like that because I would never let someone suffer forever. Well, I wouldn't either. You know something else I'd never do either? I'd never give my son to die for sinners. Would you? We don't think like God because we're not God. We have no clue what it's like to be the God who made us in his image, given us everything he's given us, and then been rejected. We don't know what that feels like. God does. And that's the seriousness of sin. But he's willing to forgive us through Jesus how can a loving God send someone to hell? Next time someone asks you that, ask them this. How can a reasonable person reject God's gracious offer of salvation? How can a loving God send someone to hell? I, I don't know. That's God's choice. But how can any reasonable person reject what Jesus did for you? 
Why would you do that? Why would you reject what Jesus did for you? C.S. Lewis was so right when he said, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. Have it your way. God has told you he loves you. He showed you he loves you. He's patient toward you, but he will not drag you kicking, screaming into heaven. Only those who bowed the knee before him and called him Lord and Savior will be there with him, and they'll be so happy they are. How do you do that? Some of you have never committed your life to Jesus. We just had a lady last service. She was baptized in another church. I was too when I was little. I need to make my own decision. You have to make your own decision. And you do it by saying, Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I failed God, that I've turned my back to God. But I want to make that right. And I believe that Jesus Christ died on that cross and took my punishment in my place so I could be made righteous in God's eyes. I confess him not just as my Savior, but my Lord, my King, the one I want to serve. And we seal the deal by getting baptized and say, the old is gone, the new has come. I'm living now a new life for Jesus Christ. 